to two groups in this country, patriots and traitors. No middle ground. Disinformation is not simply lies or falsifications. It is the art of having your enemies say what you want them to say. Who would engage in espionage on Twitter? Who would be that stupid? Not me. It's very important to educate people about these techniques. They have the Great Reset, we have the Great Awakening. Another type of active measure is the agent of influence. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. You know, it's very hard for journalists to accept that this has been going on. What do you get your opinions from? TV? Disinformation is actually a deliberately distorted or manipulated information that is uh, leaked into the communication system of the opponent with the expectation that it would be accepted as genuine information and uh, influence either the decision-making process, for example, or to influence or manipulate public opinion. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. Some questions remain unanswered. What is the effect of all these active measures? I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. We're lucky to have Matt and Tawny Browning joining us on the Did Nothing Wrong podcast today. They are the authors of a new book titled The Hate Next Door, Undercover Within the New Face of White Supremacy. Matt worked in the Mesa, Arizona Police Department for 20 years, and during that time, he became an undercover detective working inside the white supremacy movement. Matt has been infiltrating, documenting, and disrupting white supremacy movements from the inside for over 25 years now, gaining an intimate vantage point to the KKK, skinheads, border militia, Proud Boys, and other white power groups as they organized and grew, their ranks alarmingly including police force and military veterans. Matt's wife and co-author Tawny also went undercover, helping gather intelligence against various members of the white supremacist movement. Together, in 2005, the Brownings founded what is now known as the Supremacist Intelligence Network, which provides training, expert testimony, and networking to add in the identification, location, and tracking of violent extremist organizations and individuals throughout the world. Incredibly, the Brownings did all of this while raising five kids. Their new book chronicles not only their time undercover, but the toll this work took on them personally and how it affected their family. Matt and Tawny, we're thrilled to have you guys here today. Welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. This is going to be great. So can you tell our listeners how you got started investigating the white power movement? I first started uh, looking into the white power movement because the first skinhead I met tried to kill me on a traffic stop. So that caused me to go to this place of, okay, so you want to kill me? So what's this all about? And then going and looking at him just opened up the world. I became a member of the National Alliance. And from the Alliance, everybody was coming in. So you had your your street-level skins. You had your AN. You had your creators, all kinds of clan. The Alliance in Arizona just brought everybody into the movement. And that's that's where it all started. Wow. What year was that? Well, shoot. I started my undercover work in 96. Okay. The skinhead that tried to kill me was in 94. Okay. And then that opened the door. And then in 96 is when I really started doing the undercover stuff. Well, and what's interesting about that guy is that three three weeks later, he shot a Mesa cop in the back. back. You know, he didn't get Matt. They kind of 
tussled over a gun. They released him and he shot another Mesa cop in the back. So he was out there to do it. Right. I think you mentioned that in the book. And is it right that he is getting out of prison now or is he already out? Yeah, Jason's out. He's actually not too far from where I'm at right now. But yeah, he's out of prison. And, you know, whatever ideology he is now, whatever way he leans, I I don't know. But um, yeah, I can credit him to this whole ball rolling. Wow. Do you start to lose sleep over something like that? Somebody getting out of prison, somebody who could theoretically hold a grudge. Does that still weigh on you? Yeah, you know what? That's stuff you can't get over, especially when you have people saying that that still Matt's blood will run or Detective Browning's blood is going to run on the streets of Phoenix and just garbage like that. So, yeah, it's always something in the back of your mind, but you got to live your life. You got to move on. And that's that's unfortunately the thing about the ideology of hate is they don't move on. No, they stay in that stay in that bubble of hate. And there's nothing on the outside that they go to. I just think it's remarkable that through all this, you guys managed to raise five kids, which uh, I have three and <laughs> I, I don't know how you did it. I don't I don't know if you want to give any parenting advice while you're here, but uh... I think that's an easy. All right. First of all, we didn't raise five kids. Tani raised five oh, kids. Not, I will so. not allow that. I will not allow that because father's role, I mean, we're not going to even get into that, are imperative to children's lives. And we all know that. So. Yeah, and, and in the book, you know, we, we talk a lot about mental health and what the, the tolls of of not just undercovering white supremacist groups, but undercovering anything or even being a police officer, what it does to your mind. And and luckily for me, I had, you know, Tani that was able to, to coach me and walk me through everything. And I knew that no matter what success we had in life or how many, how successful he was at putting skinheads in jail and you know, making this world a better place that if we weren't taking care of what was right here at home, nothing outside of that was going to matter. So you guys always managed to stay pretty grounded and pretty focused on like, this is the the home. This is what we have to focus on before we can focus on any of the other stuff that's outside of this. I absolutely was not going to live in fear and I wasn't going to let our children live in fear. And so I kind of gave that to Matt. He was our protector and I tried to keep the home a happy place where love could thrive. And that wasn't always sustainable, but we sure have tried. Right. So what can you tell us about your work for the group you started, the Skinhead Intelligence Network? Well, um, it started as Skinhead Intelligence Network and now it's the Supremacist Intelligence Network because, you know, a lot of people think that just Skinhead locks you into one thing. What we do is we look at everything to the extremes, you know, and, and the people who think they're supreme and things like that. So what it was, it started with a group of five people and we grew it into an organization of hundreds and international. We bring law enforcement in from all over the world. We talk about hate. We fight hate. We've actually been able to track guys from Spokane to California to Florida, to Texas, you know, to Arizona, Italy, Germany, all the same person just by the people we have in, in various locations throughout the world. And it's, it's been great. It's been great. And Matt kind of started that because, you know, police work is so jurisdictional and hate had no bounds. Yeah. So these guys, if they went over into Phoenix out of Mesa or into California, we still needed to track these guys to know what was going on. And so that law enforcement could know what was going on. 
Definitely. And it seemed like that was a deliberate strategy on their part. And a lot of times was just move around, just yeah, doing the same things, but keep moving. Yeah. You know, and hate is not an ideology of turf and, you know, slinging dope and things like that. Hate is an ideology that goes everywhere. And so you have to have communication everywhere. You guys on your podcast, get the word out to anybody who will listen. And I think that's what we wanted with sin is just to get people to listen. And and what was so great about that is that there was, you know, 25 guys across the country. Isn't that what you started with? Mm -hmm. 25 guys across the country that were experts at what they were doing. And when you brought that together, it was crazy. It's a a proven model. It, It worked and they trusted each other and it was amazing. Definitely. So you mentioned on your website that there, and you just mentioned it just now that you guys have members across the United States and Canada and Australia and the UK, various European agencies. What do you find that these various hate groups have in common? Hate. <laughs> they all hate. It, do, it doesn't matter. They're all angry people who, who want to promote their anger and their only release or outlet is either through violence or through rhetoric. And, and so it's it's all the same. Hate in the UK is the same as hate in America. And actually, if you go back in the history of hate, you know, the Hammerskins were formed by guys that left the UK to come to Texas. Then all of a sudden you have Hammerskins. And so what I found is that hate travels and we cannot be locked into one thing, but we have to communicate. Well, right. I love what you say. It's it's rhetoric meets rhetoric meets ideology. And then you throw religion into it and then you mm. have violence. Right, right. What are they doing to cooperate these days? Are you seeing a lot of cooperation between the various groups from, say, the UK to the some of the more European far-right groups to what's going on over here? I think what, what I'm seeing a lot is that they want to. They mm-hmm. want to communicate and they want to, they want to come together and join because really the sad reality is if they would join together, we'd be kind of out of luck. But there's the egos and the, the they're money driven. Who's going to get the most money out of it? And, and that's the problem. You know, these guys from the U.S. think, oh, the hate's the best in the U.S. Then they go over to Germany and try to preach that the hate in the U.S. is better than hate in Germany. It's just causes problems. I, I don't want to underestimate it. But to me, watching from, you know, not being entrenched in it as, in it as much as Matt was, it was like very childish. Mm-hmm. I saw lots of childish things going on and it was quite shocking. These are children that are acting like children that are grown adults that can actually cause harm. So I don't want to underestimate it because none of it should be underestimated. But sometimes it was just shocking. Yeah. Regardless of where you're at in the world, it's the ideology is all the same. We hate the Jews. We hate the blacks. We hate the Muslims. We we hate anybody in the U.S. If you're in the in the Southwest, you hate the Mexicans. If you're in the Northeast, you hate the Jews and and the Muslims. And then there's the middle ground where we hate everybody. There's really no difference. It's just the political parties that they associate with and who's deciding to stand up and preach at that time. Well, Matt always says if you go enough far enough right and you go enough, far enough left, you're going to meet in the middle. And that mm-hmm. he is there. Absolutely. Right. Guys like Tom Metzger from the White Aryan Resistance used to say essentially the same thing, where he would describe himself as a socialist a lot of the time and not necessarily just a national socialist. He would say, you know, I believe in all kinds of things that 
you know, the right wingers would hate me for, you yeah. know, for the good of the white race. It's the way he used to put yeah. it. And so it definitely becomes the focus and the rest of it becomes kind of off to the wayside almost. I know that you've talked about this, but there seems to be a consensus both in the U.S. and maybe the rest of the West that it's that hate is worse in the United States. And you've talked about how well hate is everywhere. And, and clearly you, you've cooperated with people in various countries. It's it's not um, it's not just here. It's everywhere. But are there things that other countries are doing that law enforcement or the government is doing that we are failing to do in the United States? You know, that's a great question. We we went over and spoke to the in the UK and we worked with Scotland Yard. We have some sin guys are with Scotland Yard. Those guys, they don't put up with it. They go and, and you tell them and, and they got right on it. Australia, we've been to Australia teaching. Law enforcement in Australia is amazing. It really is. But the political heads and the people running the different agencies that want to fight against what they need to do is where the stumbling block is. And I think that's the same as in the U.S. The problem we have in the U.S. now is that hate has been so transfused into modern day living and modern day rhetoric and modern day politics that it's hard to actually pull it out. That's why the rhetoric and the ideology is so important. What's the ideology that is based upon your decision in this law that we just passed or this law that you're trying to pass or this whatever's going on? What is your ideology in the words that we use? You know, are we using the words like invasion or nationalist? Because we know, and you guys know this from what you've done for so long, if you say we're being invaded and you say that to an active border militia mm-hmm. who's full of ex-military and ex-cops, what are they going to do? Holy crap, we're being invaded and they're going to go down and defend and shoot at anything to come across. Mm-hmm. But that's the same that's going on in European countries and Australia with immigration and everything else. So to answer your question, it's all the same crap, just a different country. So you mentioned in the book watching January 6th unfold like the rest of us and recognizing some of the participants, but also looking out for patches and symbols and other signs of affiliation. However, as you wrote, a lot of the people there were not known to have links to militias or other far right groups. Why is it so necessary to be accurate about the people we're dealing with in an event like this? Yeah, that's a wow. You know, I think it's it, we need to understand and we need to know what we're dealing with. Any riot situation, any large group situation, you're going to have an instigator. And the rhetoric that that instigator is spewing is the way that that crowd is going to go. So if you have, we'll just say, I mean, the Proud Boys were there with their their crazy little orange or yellow beanies on so they could identify each other. Right. You know, you had Oath Keepers, which, which I have a huge problem with because they're all cops and ex-cops and that are there doing their stupid thing but the problem is is that they're the rhetoric that they're putting out is motivating everybody else to follow them and to do what they're doing and so it's important to look at the groups individually because there were some people there that were just caught up in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just caught up. Maybe they saw an open, broken window that they could go through to get in the White House. Yeah, right. So we can't label everybody as a hater, but we definitely can label those that deserve to be labeled as haters. And that's why we have to look at it. And that's why January 6th was so interesting 
is because every demographic was there. Right. And I think one reason that we wanted to write The Hate Next Door is that I feel like folks can get thrown into these situations or find themselves in situations drowning before they realize they even got in the water. So we wanted to raise the alarm on that a little bit as well. Right. It sort of gets into that idea of, well, if you call everyone a fascist and then the word starts to lose all meaning and words do have meaning, buzzwords and saying things like invasion. Well, that that is unhelpful. But labeling people as extremists when they're not extremists, they are either caught up or they are confused or they are radicalized. Yeah, if you want to prevent it from happening again, you have to understand the people you're dealing with. I think that's lost on a lot of people and it's lost in the shouting on social media. But it is, I'm, I'm really glad that you pointed that out. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there once was a time that we would say this is a white power group. And, and we would back that up because of the ideology and the rhetoric or, or maybe the religious practices that they might follow that are white power but now it's like, you don't agree with me? Oh, you're a racist. Right. You're a hater. You, you, you just, we can't do that. There's too many people whose lives are ruined because of this misidentification and, and mislabeling that so many people are doing. And that's why we wrote The Hate Next Doors, because we want to start the conversations. Right. And, and you know, I, it's crazy. I had a phone call the other night where the conversation was started where there was communication that that was made and, and we understood each other and we're able to move on, hopefully. Hmm. So speaking of correctly identifying people, you mentioned several times in the book how in your experience, the Proud Boys would often show up at Trump rallies or other political events to quote, fight Antifa, unquote, but more mm -hmm. often than not, there was no Antifa there for them to fight. Yeah. Why is it so necessary for the far right to have an enemy to fight? And how do they justify this if no Antifa shows up at all? It's very simple. The Proud Boys just want to fight. That, that's mm. basically what their, their whole philosophy is. You're taking a large number of street-level skinheads that grew up. Right. They needed an organization to go to, so they jump in with Proud Boys. Well, Proud Boys brings in all different you know, skin colors in the organization but because of the anger and the rage and everything that's still inside them, the fighting is their outlet. The right. fighting is the release. And that's why Proud Boys show up, because what is the biggest thing that they fight against? It's the left. It's the Antifa. And, I mean, quite honestly, Antifa is an easy target for them, too. It's a weird group. It's a weird phenomenon. It's a bunch of grown-up skins that just want to release their hatred. Oh, yeah. The minute I saw the photo of Gavin McGinnis with the screwdriver shirt on when he was a kid, it was kind of obvious what was going on here. It's like, yeah, all right. Yeah. I mean, what's that old community said, here's your sign. Mm -hmm. Screwdrivers linked all over to the white power movement. Oh, yeah. We all know that. And you just don't throw a t-shirt on. Yeah. You wear that shirt. You know who you're trying to signal to. You know what you're talking exactly. to. And there's just no, no real walking that one back. I don't care how much you like their first record, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And I tell you what, Gavin McGinnis, he saw the writing on the walls and that's why he got out. Yeah. You know, that's why he said, I'm out of here. That's why this really, the white power movement is almost a leaderless movement right now because nobody wants to get arrested. Nobody wants to go to prison. Nobody wants to get sued by these different ADL, SPLC, whoever else wants to go out and sue them. And, and so they're kind of operating on their own, trying to build organizations without true leadership. 
So you actually mentioned that in your book at one point. You mentioned meeting former Aryan Nations leader Richard Butler, who was maybe one of the last things they had that was closest to a big national leader in that movement. And Mm -hmm. you were reflecting on the lack of centralized leadership after his death. You observed that the movement is most dangerous when there is good leadership and a top-down mentality. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Tell us the difference between, like, say, for instance, what we've got going now, which is a movement that looks like a bunch of lone wolves versus something that would have more of a central leader at the top end of it? Yeah, I think that leadership is key. I mean, Tom Esker, he was a leader. I mean, right. he, he he was a leader for a long time. Richard Butler, in just, just my opinion, Richard Butler was probably the most respected leader within the white power movement because of who he was and what he brought up and, and how long he was in that movement. Right. Without that focus, without that person that can come to a venue and not only educate, motivate, and sometimes cause things to happen, without that, you just got a bunch of lone wolves that are going around in their own mind. What they're going to do is right. So they're going to shoot up the queue. They're going to shoot up the Walmart. They're going to shoot up all these different places. I believe a, a true leader would actually be beneficial to the movement because he could possibly stop a lot of this mass shootings and stuff from happening. I know it's a huge stretch, but they need somebody to listen to. Right. Without that person to listen to, they're just going down the rabbit holes of of the internet. And I'm really glad that you brought that up though, because we were saying without a leader, they're but they're very, as you guys know, very, very dangerous. And we mm-hmm. cannot underestimate that the mentality or the danger of that mentality. Do you see anybody on the radar who might be able to become that kind of national leader at this point? No. I see people trying. Right. But if you look, I mean, I was, it's crazy. I'm glad you asked that question because last night I was sitting here. I'm, you know, sometimes this stuff just gets stuck in your head. Oh, yeah. And you, so you start looking at it and, and, you know, you go back and look at Richard Spencer. You know, one time everybody thought that he was going to be the next leader and all that. He backed out because he's worried about lawsuits. So he does not want anything to do with the movement. Richard Butler's dead. A guy here that we talk about in the book, JT Reddy. JT was going to be a leader. He could have been a leader, but he lost it and killed a family of four, then shot himself in the head when police were coming. You know, you have guys that ran Volksfront or ran the Hammerskins or ran Vinlander Social Club. These guys could have been something, but they see the writing on the wall. To be a leader in the white power movement means you have to stand up. You have to be recognized by law enforcement. You have to be recognized by organizations that are going to sue you and take everything you have. And you have to stand up. and, And here's the hard part. Try to control a bunch of pissed off 18 to 24 year old haters who just want to go and fight all the time. There's, there's no hope in it. What about Nick Fuentes? Nick's trying to be a leader. Right. I think Nick's in it for the money. I think a lot of these leaders are are solely 100% into it for the money. Fuentes can go and draw in a crowd and all his anti-Jew rhetoric and, and everything else. But when it boils down to it, I think, He's in it for the money. I think there's another guy out of Florida who's in it for the money. I think a lot of these guys are money-based, money-driven. And once the money's done, I think they'll be done too. What's frightening is when our politicians, who are not necessarily running a hate group, but speak hatefully, right. that's where our leadership can really get out of control and, and inspire these people that are looking for that kind of leadership, right, in politics. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why Arizona politics... 
I mean, these guys like Nick mm-hmm. Fuentes, you know, and it's it's ridiculous. There is something about Arizona. It, it keeps coming up on this show. It is it is the central hub of so much. So it was fascinating that that's where you live. Well, it was, yeah. yeah. We born and raised here, man. I never knew hate was alive when I was in high school or anything else until I became a cop and the guy tried to kill me. But Arizona is so diverse because we're smacked out on the border. Right. And so we have the border issues. We have the wall. We have a Muslim population. And this is coming from guys from the Midwest. At one time, the Arizona hate scene was the most violent hate scene in the nation. You know, and, and we can show that by locking up 18 skinheads for murder or attempted murder in my time undercover. In just Arizona. In just, that's oh, yeah. not what was happening around the country as well. Yeah, just Arizona alone. So oh. I think the last, there's a guy that he used to run American Front, Dave Lynch. Okay. Dave could have been a leader, you know, but he was killed by one of his own. Yeah. The guy who tried to take over American Front from Dave Lynch is still around. And now... Mm-hmm. To bring it back to what you said earlier, he's definitely one of those like all the way left versus all the way right kind of guys. He's in sort of a weird third position, I guess, as we tend to call them sometimes. Yeah, because I think they understand that if they go extreme like they have been, they can't get anywhere. But if they go extreme the other side, they can't go anywhere. So Mm -hmm. they try to start this whole, you know, this whole online thing and the, the YouTube channels and trying to get a base. And as soon as they get their base... They get their subscribers, then yeah. they get their dues payers, and that's where they get the money. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Or the or the super chats and the in the case of Nick Fuentes, it is interesting that you you mentioned that he is to you seems like he's in it for the money because a lot of the people who have left the the Groiper Nick Fuentes movement, Jade McNeil comes to mind. They essentially say he's a fake. He's not really Catholic, or he doesn't practice. He doesn't really believe these things. And it is interesting that, well, the internet has allowed these people to monetize this hate, even if they don't believe it. Yeah. I, I think if you really look at the hate movement, it's full of hypocrisy, it's full oh, yeah. of lies. And I think as people start recognizing and seeing that, the guys that are trying to be the leaders, they know that they can only ride that wave for so long. So they're trying to suck in as much as they can. And and that's like a guy like Richard Spencer. I think that's what he did. He just yeah. wrote out mm-hmm. as long as he could. And then as Charlottesville happened, and he's like, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And now he's rebranded as a Democrat on Twitter. And uh, <laughs> a few people have managed to believe it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. People believe that for whatever reason. <laughs> Don't understand it, but. <laughs> they do. <laughs> he's reformed. No, he hasn't. He's just not talking about it anymore. Come on. Yeah, exactly. I think you can. You can take a person out of hate, but you can't take the hate out of the person. Studies have shown that the longer you're in hate, the more your brain changes. And it's harder to fix the waves that go on in in the roads in your brain. And I mean, we talked about in the book, you know, even my time, my brain was starting to do some weird stuff. And, and, you know, luckily, Tani was there to help me through it and get me out of it and, and bring me back to reality. You mentioned that at the end, and that kind of stuck with me, where you were talking about dealing with the Jewish, was it a psychologist that you talked to? And it like started hitting you, some of the things that you'd heard over the years, and you found yourself thinking, wait a minute, what the hell? What's going on with this? I mean, that and that I was sitting in his office, and, and you know, you just, you start, everything that you learned about the Jews starts flooding back in. 
And it's like, oh, he's going to screw me over. He's not going to take it. He's not a doctor. He's a, yeah. you know, you start seeing the images of the, the literature that they put out. And, you know, you start seeing all these different crazy stuff. And then, you know, I went back into the office and he looks at me and goes, dude, are you okay? <laughs> and as soon as he asked me if I was okay, it's like, okay, all right, breathe. I'll be okay. Tani told me before I went to breathe. Right. Just <laughs> breathe your way through it. Well, and in that, you know, that was wild because I know this man. I know I didn't marry a racist and I certainly no. didn't. I married a good man and I knew that. And those kind of things, I was grateful that you would talk about it because then we could say no, you know, and kind of bring everything back to reality. So I would say that if you have friends or people that are involved in any of this kind of hate group or hate rhetoric or ideology, you know, get them to talk. Get them to actually talk to you, you know, tell me about these instead of getting angry or like, what? You just let them talk because they'll they'll come around. This is not, it's bullcrap. Like mm -hmm. Matt said, it's not, it's not based in truth. But if you dive into it like you did and you, you have to pretend or you have to hear all those talking points, eventually you do internalize it. We've, we've talked to researchers and journalists who have struggled with that at times. If you let yourself be consumed by it, it really does change who you are and you, you have to be grounded. You have to find a way back or a way. I, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned in the book about the, the resetting in the car when you got home and, and remembering that the life you were leaving for the day is not the life you have at home and you're not that person, but it is important. You have to have a center that you can return to. Yeah, you have to. I remember one time I was, this is when after my undercover days were over and I was driving home and, and there's a CD that was in my center console, my truck, and it was an old bound for glory CD. Uh. And I saw it and it was one of those things. Do I put it in or do you not? And I threw <laughs> it out the window because, you know, you can't have that crap. You no. can't. And then when I came home, you know, there were times we spent a lot of time in the driveway. Yeah, we did. And, and it was, it was important time. He credits me for bringing him back, but I think some of that was the children. You know, it's right. hard for you to be a rock. When you come home, you're a rock star, and they would scream and get excited when their dad got home. And I think that helped bring him back, too. Look, this is good. This is good stuff. You know, one, one, one thing real quick is that there, there's, there's still hope for people that are part of these organizations. I don't want to make it sound like it's a lost cause if a family or a family member or a friend or somebody is involved in a hate group or something else. There's still hope. It's a long road. It's a long journey because you don't come into this world born to hate. No. It's, it is a taught ideology. And it's years and years and years of rhetoric and ideology that then eventually leads a person to the violence that they do. And there's a way to get them out. You know, if you replace two parts hate, you got to replace it with three parts of love or three parts of a hobby or three parts of something outside of the hate. You got to create that void. If you're going to take hate out, there's got to be something that's going to fill that void. Right. And it's not Fox News or CNN or or things like that. It's so frustrating because people think you're hopeless if you're involved in hate, but you can get out. You can get out. So what do you say to people who haven't gotten in yet? What do you say to parents who are worried that their kids are being potentially radicalized or could be radicalized by these groups, especially online? Well, these these folks are trying. Your our children are prey to these folks. Oh yeah. So um, I think that you've got to create 
inclusion. There's got to be a place where these kids belong. And if it's not in home, then that's where we wanted this book to get into the hands of teachers and coaches and parents and politicians so that so that we can help these kids, you know, give them a lacrosse stick, give them a football. Our child is involved in football. I mean, this is Matt's favorite story, so I'm yeah, going to let him sit, tell it. it uh, you know, our, our boy, we have boys that play football, and, and our son, he's varsity year. He's a middle linebacker. The coach brought the whole team together. The team wasn't a winning team through the first two years. They started winning this junior year. Coach brought the whole team together. They were, you know, black kids, white kids, Hispanic kids, Italian kids, Russian kids, all different races, all different ethnicities, everything. The money demographics, good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods, brought the kids together. And he said, talk to each other and learn who each other is. And when they started, they didn't do a very good job at it. So as only a coach could, he said, I mean, I want you to talk. And so they they did. And they talked. And they won the state championship title because they were a team. That's what we're missing in life. Right. We're missing, we're missing everybody from every nationality coming together and say, how can we make my street better than it is today? How can I make my school better and not just going and yelling at the school board and yelling at teachers and all this other stuff, but actually having a conversation. What I love about that is that was one coach doing what he was uniquely capable to do. It brought a team together. They they took state. And if that can happen in a high school, can it happen in the community? Can it not happen on a national level? Because we need that win. Definitely. We can do better than we're doing. And the thing is, those kids will always be bound to each other because they all have that ring. And it doesn't matter where they're at in life. They will always love each other. And, and we need that. They know they took that journey together and they know that yeah. what it took them to do that, man, it would be fascinating if we could figure out a way to pull that off for adults, for people who aren't necessarily younger kids. Well, but Yeah. And I tell Matt, you know, changing the, the face of hate one football team at a time. But and I know that that's a little bit naive and I, I've been accused of living in Tawnytopia. I know that. But it happened at Basha High School. It can happen. But the thing is, is that it happened with high school kids. Right. You know, once if you take that same thing from high school into college and keep that same mentality through college and then onto your professional lives, that's how we win. Sorry, these guys, you can get out of the hate and you can change things, but the true change of hate is going to start in our school systems and our families and what we promote. And that's how it's going to change. I am impressed just reading this book and listening to you and seeing how aware you are of the present day and, and how things have changed online and through social media, because you've been doing this a long time and we haven't been doing it nearly as long. And we've almost entirely been focused on the internet and it has streamlined so much of this and has made it so easy for people to go and find this information and be drawn into it. So how did you, did you have to transition to being on the internet more to learning about that? Or was it kind of a natural part of the job you're already doing? Well, that's, that's the crazy thing is that, I mean, if you, if you go back again, I, I'm huge on the history of hate. Really the first person that I can, I can remember that actually used the internet to then go out and kill was Dylan Roof. You know, mm -hmm. Dylan, he, he he indoctrinated himself online. He went to Charleston 
and shot up the church, killed nine people. And, and that was like for everybody in the media to say, oh my gosh, this is going on. But Tani, when, when I was, when I had some death threats come against me, Tani thought that, oh, I need to know what our threat is against the family. So Tani started doing research and she found, you know, New Saxon, you know, mm. back when New Saxon was big and all the guys talking on that and hating and she found these other websites. So I think for me, I was always, knew about all I, I, I knew about it all, but I, I, I wanted to go see and talk to face to face stuff. You can be a keyboard Nazi all you want. But when I see you and I see the tattoos and I see the stickers and I hear the music and I hear your rhetoric from your own mouth, that's how I know what type of person you are. And so the the whole Internet has really changed everything because I think it's created cowards who who only spew the rhetoric to promote other people into doing things that that are violent and wrong. So much of the work that I was able to do was on the internet. Right. You know, obviously we were we were at the clubs and concerts and, and parties and things like that. But a lot of what I did was on the internet. That's where I saw the first death threats that said that, you know, Matt needed to be buried in the desert and, and things like that we saw on the internet. Speaking of the internet, the worst use of it we've seen recently is when these people, like you mentioned, Dylan Roof, and he did this. We've seen it happen again and again, multiple mass shootings. Oftentimes they do release a manifesto. And importantly, they want people to read those manifestos. They want them to be shared and the hopes that in some cases they can get people to internalize these beliefs by normies who don't know better, sadly, than not to look at them. So the question here is how much is the exposure important to these people that want to spread this? I I think the exposure is the main reason. I mean, they all want to be a martyr. Everybody wants to be a martyr. So you have... You have a, a manifesto written in, in really, I've read manifestos from two pages up to a hundred plus pages. How long has it taken these guys to write this stuff? Oh yeah. That's how long he's living in hate. And that's how constantly, constantly, constantly. And by the time he gets done with the manifesto, he's already amped himself up by what he's writing. And it makes it easier to go out and commit the crime that he's going to commit. But they, they all want to go down as heroes. They all want to be martyrs. If anybody who has done anything for the so-called nationalist or white power or whatever movement it considers themselves a martyr Mm -hmm. you kind of hinted at something and i don't think you actually use the term but what we're seeing a lot of now is stochastic terrorism and i think there's been a good amount of pushback from maybe older people or people in more traditional media that say well we're not sure that really exists we're not really sure you can motivate someone else to go do a violent act but would you disagree with that uh yeah hands down i i totally completely disagree let's let's take hate out of the whole picture for a minute i'm a football coach and i motivate my players to go on a field and run at somebody 15 to 20 miles an hour and hit them to the ground. That's through motivating them. Now inject hate into that, inject a rhetoric into that, inject an ideology into that, inject a religious principle into that. And now you've created a terrorist because Mm -hmm. they are going to do exactly what you say to the extreme. Oh yeah. Killing one person is one killing 13. Now I'm shoot. I'm in Valhalla for sure. Oh, absolutely. That's the best and and quickest explanation I've seen of this. And it makes perfect sense. But uh, there's always people who want to kind of hem and haw and we're not sure. And but yeah, absolutely. 
Why do we have music promoting hate? Because it motivates a person to do something, to act out on an ideology that they're hearing. And this is why we wrote the book, because we wanted people to see, look, it's all around us. And it doesn't, we can combat it as long as we know what we're looking at. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that is great about your book is that you spend a lot of time talking about solutions and when you're talking about some of these solutions, the question that kind of comes to my mind is if you were tasked with scaling some of your ideas up to be able to do it like internationally, and you had a budget for this, like a real budget, like, as I've said before, maybe we buy one less bomber this year and give you the money to, you know, go ahead and work this organization. And what would you do if you had the chance to scale this thing nationally or internationally? How would you, how would you do that? Well, I, I would get, I'm sorry, I would get in the schools. I would get in the schools. That's where I would start. I would start with the people whose super highways and their brain haven't been so changed because this is not just a one-year solution. This is no. actually multi-generational. And I would start in the families, the schools, law enforcement. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would go with uh, educating law enforcement into ideologies and rhetoric because if I, if I throw up gang signs, Every cop knows what they are. But if I go and teach at a seminar and I say, do you know what 88 is? Do you know what 14 is? Who can repeat to me the 14 words by David Lane? You know, and, and who's ever heard of the National Front or American Front or any of these other groups? But they wouldn't, but they know what the Mexican Mafia is or they know the Mongols and the Vagos and the Hells Angels. So I think education is crucial and key in law enforcement. I think mental health needs to be brought in. Right. You said unlimited budget, man. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, I think that a huge chunk would be spent on our educating our politicians to shut the hell up <laughs> and to start listening and stop yelling at each other. Yeah. I, I have to, even the children that were, were in my room last night, they were calling Biden a corpse and it's just very much I felt like it was elderly shaming. I mean I shouldn't say it like that either, but I'm like even whatever you think of them, these are hateful words. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not okay. Yeah, teaching eight-year-olds that it's okay to say fuck Joe Biden or fuck the president is not great. And it and it could be the path, you know, the beginning of a very dark path. Yeah, what comes after that? Yeah, exactly. And believe, believe, I don't know if I should say this or not, but we're not really political people. We, you know, we try to just, you know, see both sides as, as well as we can. And this is not okay. And I think we can all look at that and say, this is not okay. Right. It doesn't go anywhere good. It really doesn't. It, it needs to change. I think, we, I think we start with, I think we start schools and not universities and colleges, but I think we start in junior highs, high schools and with law enforcement. I totally agree with you. And when Matt has been able to, our daughter started a, a little movement of her own and she had her dad come teach at the high school, um, different high schools and actually won a, an award for it. But it was remarkable how much the high school kids were receptive to what he was saying. Oh yeah. Cause one of the things that made a huge impression on me when I was a kid growing up in Spokane, Washington is that the Aryan nations at the time were literally recruiting kids out of my high school. And Definitely. We saw this happen on a number of occasions, and I can remember a few years later seeing some 12, 13-year-old kids with skinhead gear on and stopping the car and getting out and being like, what the hell is this? And they mentioned that kid that I remember getting recruited when he was a sophomore. 
by the Aryan nations as the kid that recruited them. And it's like, this is just a huge problem. This is like, you know, now you've got these kids that are very young that are getting recruited into this really awful shit. And that's why parents, the, the, the role of a parent is so important. I mean, Spokane, come on. That was the motherland at one oh, time. Yeah. You had the oh, border yeah. there. You had the nations. You had all, you, you have Whidbey Island where, you know, Robert Matthews was killed. You had the, the, everything going on in that area. And, and you, but the thing now is that all that stuff, I mean, if you ask somebody who Robert Matthews was, a lot of people don't even know that are, are in the hate movement now. And so I think it's a parent's responsibility to know what our kids are looking at online. Absolutely. You know, I think it's our, our responsibility as parents that when I feel myself getting upset because they're saying something on the news, okay, I got to tone it down because my four, five, eight, 16 year old kid right. is going to hear the things that I'm saying. And we just don't need that. Right. And that's where we can all start. I mean, I think we all know that where we can start is start. This is so trite. I get it. But kindness begins with me. It really does. And that means what we're listening to, what we're doing and what we're teaching our children. Education is key. Definitely. One thing to point out, it's kind of, you know, you mentioned the history of it and how knowing the history of this movement is kind of critical for where we're at now. One of uh, Nick Fuentes' latest catchphrases is one that he seems to have stolen from Bob Matthews. Uh, we had Daniel Schwartz on the program the other day, and he pointed out that Nick Fuentes has been going around saying total Aryan victory on his web streams all the time. And it's like he got that from Matthews. That yeah. was a Bob Matthews yeah. thing. See, but a lot of people don't realize that Matthews got his start at 17 as a tax protester. He yep. was actually trained in Mesa, Arizona, where I was a cop, by oh. a tax protester. He went to Phoenix and started his first militia at like age 18 or 19 called the Sons of Liberty in Arizona, where mm -hmm. he brought in military guys to train. You know, then he goes on up to Spokane. A lot of these guys aren't just jumping right into hate. They're dabbling, putting their little toes in to fill the water, but they're going to pull in all these other anti-government movements, all the all the other things going on until eventually they listen to Nick Fuentes and says this whole Aryan and, <laughs> and this whole you know, the Jews are the root cause of the 2C bloodline and all this other stuff, the Christian identity stuff. And and it just needs to stop. Right. But that's what makes America great is you can say whatever you want. <laughs> you know, as long as you don't promote the violence, as soon as you promote that violence, then then that's where you stepped over the line. Definitely. That's where we have to draw that line and say, no, no, sorry. You can't mm -hmm. say, go kill that guy. You can't say, go kill those people. You can't say, go hurt those people. That's no, your free speech rights. end at the edge of my nose, as I once heard it said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as you've talked about, sometimes people that are in these hate movements or are starting to dip their toe in may not be easy to spot at first. They aren't always openly racist or covered in tattoos that give them away. They might be your neighbor. They might be someone that you see every day and you have no idea. Do you have a specific set of warning signs or what you could tell people to look out for if they're starting to be concerned? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And what I would tell you is that with everybody, everybody's different. You know, some people jump right into it and, and all of a sudden a normal kid comes back with a back piece of an 88 tattoo on his back, you know, but but there are still the warning signs that you would have. You got to look at what are they reading? What are they listening to? Music is so crucial and key in all this. Right. Um, 
I start looking at stick. I look at bumper stickers all over the place. I look at window stickers, license plates, you know, the things that I was working in a case where the guy had skin 88 for his license plate. And it's like, oh my, it's a no brainer. But nobody understood what that was. And so I think the more that we educate and people are aware, I think the more people are going to, are, are less wanting to put this stuff out there. And, um, for me as an investigator and as a parent, I would look at stickers on cars and tattoos. And I would go someplace maybe a little bit simpler. Um, even what does your kid's friend group look like? Do you know their friends? Are they all white? For us, it was easy because we live in diverse communities. Did, are your kids' um, friend groups also diverse? That's great advice and also very fascinating to me talking about bumper stickers because we watched and followed QAnon pretty much from the beginning, 2017, late 2017, when it first popped up. And I knew it was serious and a problem online. And I saw it growing and getting bigger. But I also, I was in rural Georgia at the time, it's where I lived, and I started seeing QAnon stickers or stickers about the storm, that the storm is coming, these QAnon buzzwords and catchphrases. And I thought, oh God, this, this isn't going away. But that is, a, that is a, great, a great point and a great thing to look out for. Yeah, you got to look at the stickers. Yeah, I am a firm believer in looking at the, the light. I, even when we go to church, I'm driving through the parking lot looking at, okay, who's here today? You know, I'm looking for bumper stickers and window stickers. So yeah, it's important. You have to. And you see them every so often. You see those signifiers, and you're like, oh, I know what that is. That's not, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, driving to a football game, driving to our son's football game, when I, I see a license plate that says, F the ATF. And it's like, all right. You know, it's not a legit license. It's fictitious. But you know the mindset of that uh-huh. person already. And so as a police officer, when I pull that car over, all right, I know the mindset that this person has. And so, and that is as non-police officers, as people who just want to make this world a better place, we need to know those same identifiers, whether it's on a t-shirt, you see a guy with a screwdriver t-shirt, bound for glory, whatever t-shirt it is, or QAnon, you see a guy walking down with a big Q on his shirt. I mean, that's, that's not always that easy to bring. That's kind of a no brainer, but yeah, other ones are real subtle, little tiny 14 in the window or, or things like that. Absolutely. And having a certain amount of that knowledge of these are some of their signifiers, these are some of their more obscure signifiers that they like to throw into the in crowd. You know, that way when you see some politician potentially throwing that out on social media, you're like, who are you trying to signal to? What are you saying when you say that? Seriously. Well, for national TV, we were we were in DC and he had the news on and we saw <laughs> someone that was advertising their stuff on TV and the promo card code was 88, someone oh, who God. may or may not be a hater. So we thought, I mean, for most of most people may not know what that meant, but for people that he might be wanting to target, you they have, knew exactly what that meant. You have thousands upon thousands of numbers right. that you can use, and you use 88. It's like, come on, dude. Hmm. Who are you <laughs> talking to, you know? <laughs> Since I brought it up, I did have one question that I wanted to ask you related to QAnon, because you, you talked about it in the book. You talked about actually seeing Jacob or Jake Chansley, who 
would go on to become the QAnon shaman and he went to prison and now he's back out and is, is back on, back on his bullshit really. But he, he is now kind of embraced the movement again, but it was fascinating to me to, to have you talking about how QAnon was really a continuation of, of themes and ideas that have been swimming around the far right ecosystem for a long time. And I thought it might be useful for for you to explain how some of those older narratives do feed into new versions and QAnon or whatever comes next. Well, real quick on on Chansley, why why is he doing what he's doing now? He's getting paid to show up at a hotel and speak. As soon as the money dries up, he's done. There's nothing. There's nothing there, and that's how this whole movement goes. You know. With QAnon, I think QAnon, unfortunately, is going to be here for a while because it's online and everybody can go spew their crap that they believe, whether it's, you know, the the two seed line, the one seed line, whatever identity movement you want to do, whether it's, you know, the pizza parlor and, and kids being molested. You know, there's all kinds of things in QAnon that you can put out there that aren't vetted and nobody nobody even bothers researching to see if they're true. We're just about, as JT Reddy would say, that don't be a sheeple. We're huh. just a bunch of sheeple that go down the rabbit hole, and before you know it, we get sucked in. So what kind of new stuff? I don't think we're going to get any new stuff. I think I think when it comes to hate, it's all the same stuff. Nothing has changed. Right. I mean, what, what has changed in the hate movement since, you know, pre-Hitler? Not nothing, a lot. Nothing. We, it's, it's the same crap. Yeah. And, and that's why... When it comes to these groups like QAnon, they're just pulling off the other stuff to, to, again, promote and spark and cause, you know, violence and cause the things going on in people's brains. So they do stupid things and stupid things include, you know, hunting trips that your street level skins will do, mass shootings that your real haters are doing. And, and that's what I believe. I don't think anything new is going to pop up because it's all the same old crap. Well, the old becomes new. Right, and if we right. can recognize what those signs are, then we can see it. That's why history is key and crucial when you're looking at hate, and that's why we wrote the book is so that we can all see it because we don't need it. So, thank you so much for talking with us today, Matt and Tani. And before we let you go, how can people support your work, and where can they find your new book, The Hate Next Door? You can find the book wherever books are sold. And if you want to know more about us, you can go to our website at mattandtawny.com. And that's M-A-T-T-N-T-A-W-N-I.com. Okay, cool. And you can support us by opening up your freaking mouth and talking. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what you can do. That's it. Changing the world one conversation at a time, you know? that That's what we hope. Thank, and that's why we appreciate you having us and for what you the work you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really it's a phenomenal book, folks. You should all go check it out. I, I read it. I loved it. Just couldn't put it down once I got it open. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This has been wonderful. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Keep Thank doing you. what you're doing, guys. You're doing great. So are you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Take care. See you. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, 
G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNWPod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.